0: You're listening to the Vision Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are taking a closer look at the core values we are seeking to build in our community in Louisville.
1: Gracious Father, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to be together this evening, this opportunity to uh, sit under your word as a family. I pray, Father, that you would uh, take Uh, This message, and multiply it in the hearts of each person here. Your word says that your sheep know your voice and a stranger they will not follow. Help us to hear your voice, to know it, and to respond. Help us to not simply be hearers of the word, but doers. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Last year, along with uh, two other pastors uh, from Sojourn Midtown, I had the opportunity to go to Lyon, France to visit uh, some of our sent ones uh, that was there. And while I was there, I uh, learned the story of a woman by the name of Blandina, who was a physically disabled slave girl who got martyred in Lyon, France in AD 177. And here's a report from those who witnessed her death. In an exceeding degree, did the whole wrath of mob fall on Blandina, the slave girl, through whom Christ showed that the things that to humanity appear disabled and deformed are worthy of God's own glory and those who love him. We were all afraid that Blandina would not be able to make a bold confession on account of the weakness of her body. But Blandina was filled with such power that those who tortured her one after the other in every way from morning till evening were wearied and tired, confessing that they did not know what to do, for they had no other torture they could apply to her. And they were astonished that she remained in life. And when her whole body had been torn and opened up, but the blessed woman, like a noble athlete, recovered her strength, and her dying declaration was this, I am a Christian, and despite your accusation, there is no evil done amongst us. Blandina is a beautiful example of a disciple of Jesus Christ who made an impact on her city as a result of her grit. And the way that she made an impact was in and just being an ordinary Christian. And some 2,000 years later, uh, many in, in the city of Lyon know her story. In fact, when we were there, the, the missionaries pointed out where uh, the square in which she was martyred. It is, it is a part of the tapestry of Francis' history. And she was able to persevere, not because she was a super Christian, but because she believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ she believed in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and she was captured by this person named Jesus who saved her and in the same way in the book of Acts we see that the church of Jesus Christ is becoming a a movement they're becoming a movement because of three things one is because they have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ. Two, is because they have been filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And third, it is because they devoted themselves to what they were called to. The book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles now, All the the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Early on in the book of Acts chapter one, we see that Jesus is getting ready to ascend, to go into heaven. And he tells the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These disciples who were just 40 days before despondent, apathetic, scared and afraid, are now looking at a resurrected Savior and receiving a commission that is essentially saying, you are about to be used by me to turn this city upside down, to reach people who are your enemies, and to reach the nations. And the key to doing this was them being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that in Acts chapter 2, that The Spirit came in one day when they were gathered together praying like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were staying and they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so we see that the Holy Spirit comes uh, 10 days later in a very dramatic form. So much so that the, the disciples are now able to hear other uh, Jewish people speaking uh, without a language barrier who are, are from all different parts of the world. And the Bible says that there was like a flame of fire over uh, their head that looked like a, a, a tongue. Um, and this was uh, symbolic of, of perhaps uh, God's presence, which was known to be in the temple. And where there was fire, uh, a burning constantly in the temple that that God was saying that my, my presence is not primarily to be seen to be in this place, the temple, but it's to be seen in my people. You are the temple. You are where I now dwell. And the Holy Spirit came upon the early disciples in a powerful way, a way that enabled them to live the life that they were meant to live. And so when we talk about the book of Acts, what we're talking about is... It's not simply the acts of the apostles. We're talking about the acts of the apostles through the acts of the Holy Spirit. But not only was they well with the Holy Spirit, they were also captured and captivated by the gospel message. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit falls in a dramatic way, so dramatic that people think that the disciples are drunk. It's 9 a.m. and they just assume that they're drunk. And the Bible says that Peter stood up with the 11, he spoke on behalf of the 11, he preached a short sermon, and at the conclusion of this short sermon that was all about Jesus and how they had crucified the Messiah, verse 37 says that the audience was pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter, what should we do? In verse 38, Peter responded. He said, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, turn away from your life, a life that is committed to you, to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You receive the forgiveness of sins, and you will be empowered with the Holy Spirit. The reason that I bring that up is because it is only when It is only when we grasp and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and realize that we are empowered and indwelled by the Holy Spirit that we will be able to fulfill our vision. As This is the last week of our vision series, which is to fill up our city as gritty disciple makers. We will not do this through our own strength and our own effort, but it is by us coming back to the word, looking at the early church to say, God, how did you move in the early church? How is it just a couple centuries after Jesus is crucified and resurrected? Are there five million Christians in Rome? How is it? But there's a third way and a third reason that the early church was able to, to do what they were able to do. And Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, essentially is focusing on that. And it can be found in this word, devoted. This word, devoted, which is essentially saying that they were gritty. (laughs) They were passionate people who persevered in the basic, everyday, mundane things that God called them to do, the everyday, ordinary, uh, godly disciplines. They were devoted. We stay in a a time and in an era where you hear a lot of people a lot of times say people aren't devoted to anything anymore, but that's just not true. Everybody is devoted to something. The question is, what are you devoted to? When I was in high school, I played uh, basketball in Chicago, and I I played against some really good basketball players. Well, some of them I played against. Some of them I just watched from the bench, but I was on a team so I could say I played against them. One being uh, Dwayne Wade. I got to guard him one play and it didn't work out well for me. He might have dunked. Another being a guy by the name of Luther Head and Eddie Curry. All three went into the NBA and they were uh, drafted and had solid careers either in college or the NBA. But there was another guy that I played against whose name was Larry. Larry, in my estimation, was better than all of them. Larry could shoot, he can jump, He had the best handle. He was a marvelous basketball player. And uh, Larry was was destined for the NBA just off talent and and intuition alone. But the issue with Larry is is that he never could make it through a full season. And I remember one day playing pickup basketball with him and asking him why that was. I thought that he was just getting injured each year. I said, Larry, every year you start off, the papers is talking about you, scouts are talking about you. And uh, by the middle of the year, man, every year you just kind of disappear. And then next year it's the same thing. I said, what injury keeps nagging you? And he looked at me and he was honest. He said, it's not an injury. He said, every year around the same time I get bored and I love video games and I quit to play a video game called NBA 2K. <laughs> and He says, and once that wears off, I start getting ready for the next season. It starts again and I stop again. Larry ended up playing pro ball in Brazil. In fact, a few uh, years ago, I remember watching the US play, and I'm looking at the television, and he is playing for the Brazilian Olympic team. Larry probably could have made it to the NBA. The issue was not that he was not devoted. The issue was that Larry was devoted to the wrong thing. What he was devoted to was video games at that time, as opposed to cultivating his skills to be that type of player. You know, I like to think myself, I'm not just going to get on Larry. I mean, Cliff, I think I could have, I might have been able to make it to the NBA if I was more devoted, you know? Can't you see me playing besides Giannis with the Milwaukee Bucks? What y'all laughing at? I just envisioned me in the league. If only I was devoted to the right thing. Who knows what could have happened? Y'all so silly. The early church... They were devoted to the right things. And what were the right things that they were devoted to? Well, the Bible lays it out. One was the apostles' teaching, which simply can be the word of God. The the apostles taught um, what they had learned from Jesus in his ministry with them, and also what he had taught them during their 40 days of appearance. So these uh, Christians are now gathering. The gospel is preached by Peter. 3,000 people are saved. And so what do they do? They start gathering in each other's homes. They go to the temple uh, uh, daily, and and they begin to just eat the word of God, the apostles' teaching. And and we have received the apostles' teaching through what we call the New Testament, these these, uh, 27 books that we have, which is a collection essentially of what these early uh, teachers have received. And this is the word that we have received. And if we are going to fill up our city with gritty disciple-makers, if we are going to have, have victory in the vision that God has called us to, it's because we are devoted to God's word as well. The Bible is very clear that the, the, the people of God are to be a word people. Psalm 19 verse 7 tells us that the word of God revives and renews our souls. The instructions of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Psalm 119, 106 says, Lord, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. It gives us direction and clarity. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that it is the word of God that that helps get to the deepest part of our soul. It it is a double-edged sword that helps us to discern what is good, what is right, and what is true. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of the word of God being like food. He says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight uh, to me and a joy of my heart, for I bear your name, Lord God of armies. The psalmist often talks about how the word is sweeter than honey on a honeycomb. Jesus said that the, the, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God has given us his word. Now, A.W. Pink says this about the word of God, which I believe we need to hear, because some of us, when we hear this, we think just morning devotions, and we think just kind of uh, just, just religiously reading for the sake of religion. But A.W. says this, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God. That they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in their core and the center of their hearts. Are we devoted to God's word? Many of us are spiritually anemic. James tells us that the word of God is a mirror. It helps us to see ourselves rightly. And we barely Open the word. Not only did they devote themselves to the word, but they also devoted themselves to each other. Acts chapter 2 uses this word fellowship, which is the Greek word koinonia, which is, occurs in the New Testament 20 times. This is the first time that it occurs in uh, the Bible. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, and it says, Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, this word fellowship is the same word that we have here in Acts chapter 2. It's this picture of of deep relationship, of deep communion that comes from the Holy Spirit. And, and as the church, since you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and I am indwelled with the Holy Spirit, when we place our affections on Christ to, together, we get to supernaturally experience his presence, his peace, his joy, his love, and it, it stirs in us and it, it, it causes us to move towards good works, the writer of Hebrews says. In the early church, they were devoted to each other and to this type of fellowship. Verse 46 says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in a temple. They were living their lives t- together. This past spring, I had the opportunity to go to uh, a church called Grace Point in Alameda, California, which is just outside of Oakland. The church that I went to was a largely an Asian-American church. But this church looked at the book of Acts uh, over a decade ago, and they were so moved by Acts chapter 2 and what they saw in the book of Acts, they said, what if, as a church, we just strategize in the way that the early church did? What if we actually put the kingdom of God first, and if in order to be a member, you had to commit to this radical way of living that you see in Acts chapter 2, where your life revolves?" around making Jesus Christ known and living together with the people who are part of your local church. And they did this. And as a result, they've been able to start almost 50 churches. In fact, this small church, uh, their whole motto is we want to see an Acts 2 church on every, uh, near every college uh, university in America. And what I experienced while at this church for two days was one of the most inspiring pictures of the Christian life that I could ever experience. These people were so hospitable. They were so filled with the Spirit. They were just loving each other, sharing stories about how their kids had grown up together, testifying about how God was saving uh, people. They were making radical sacrifices. Most of them drove minivans. And when we asked why did everybody drive minivans, including the college students, they said, well, it's most practical. This way we can get more people to and from church who don't have rides. They did what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They they believe that God has saved them out of darkness, not so that they can live extremely comfortable lives here, but so that they can risk their lives for the one who risks their lives for them, knowing that they had an eternity in heaven to celebrate and to rest. They were so filled with joy and sincerity. I even talked to the pastor. I said, pastor, I hear you talking. I hear people talking about how much you disciple them, how they come in and out your house. I said, when do you burn out? He says, no, we draw boundaries and we tell people to to be wise and to rest and, and to make sure that they are considering their stage of life. I said, what about your kids? Aren't you kind of sacrificing your kids on the altar of ministry? He says, no, we just have this rhythm and we invite our children into this rhythm. They are a part of the mission. They help set the table when we have guests. They help clean up when we have guests. They celebrate our victories with them. They they are a part of what we're doing. It was an incredible picture. And I remember flying back home thinking, Lord, what I would do to be a part of a church like that. And the Lord began to convict me, like Jamal, as, as a pastor and one of the under shepherds here, you get to help cultivate that. You get to help challenge your people by giving them a, a, a alternate way of living, a, a, a way in which we see in the New Testament where people were devoted to Jesus Christ and his kingdom to the word, to living life together, and where they were recentering their lives around Jesus and his mission as opposed to recentering their lives around them and their children and their comfort and ease and then kind of fitting Jesus in conveniently whenever they could. And the results of such a life is is not one of of just heartache and misery and pain. Though we read the book of Acts, we see heartache, we see broken relationships, we see pain, we see discipline. The results that we see in this text is that these people were glad and filled with joy. I just was talking to a buddy of mine who just came back, and I won't share the city that he was in in in, in Africa, uh, but he was there teaching. And I just was talking to him uh, this week. We both kind of co-led a a, a, a funeral of a a young lady who who passed uh, at 18 years old. It was a really hard funeral. And at the end of the funeral, I asked him about this mission trip he he led. And he stopped and looked me in the eyes. He said, Jamal, it was incredible. But man, I'll be honest. I came back and I was kind of upset and angry because I I was over there teaching People were walking from miles and miles and miles just to hear the word of God. And they got, they got agitated when we stopped teaching. They got agitated when we stopped praying. They wanted to pray more. They wanted to hear God's word more. They wanted to gather together. They wanted to be together as a church. And he said, man, it's hard for me to come back now and to go to my church and to preach when I know most of the people who are sitting there probably haven't picked up their Bibles and are just there out of out of routine you know i don't i honestly don't know what to do with that and i i honestly don't know what to do what i'm feeling inside and i'm not trying to guilt you i'm not trying to i'm i'm part of this i'm i'm part of this consumeristic christianity this this version of christianity that we have in america and i'm saying with you i want to get to a place where i am desperate and we are desperate for the presence of jesus where we believe that Jesus is enough and that our joy will be found not in us pursuing stuff and things in our own dreams, but in us living into his dream, living into his reality, living into his kingdom, pressing in, believing that we can have more joy in seeing one sinner come to Christ than us crossing off something on our to-buy list or places to go visit list. They also got together and they broke bread. And I believe this is twofold we see in this text. One, they were over each other's houses sharing meals together, doing ordinary things together, just living life, the messiness of life together, just enjoying meals. But they also, part of this breaking bread was that they were taking communion regularly. And communion is a gift that Jesus has given us as a church so that we can remember what he did for us on the cross At the center of their spirituality was the fact that that they had become adopted into the family of God. They had become Abba's children, that they had been declared righteous, that God looks upon them with delight and satisfaction even when they fall short. And they took this meal together, communion, they broke bread and they drank wine together remembering what Jesus saved them from and what he saved them to. They were devoted. They were devoted to prayer, the text says. Look at your Bibles. The Bible says that they prayed together. They they spent time adoring God together. They spent time confessing together. They spent time giving thanksgiving together. They spent time giving supplications together. In fact, listen, Jesus, Acts chapter 1, he tells them, yo, I'm about to go. He didn't say yo, but he says, I'm about to go to the Father Y'all wait, tarry to the Holy Spirit. And here's what I'm leaving you to do, Peter, James, John. I'm leaving you to reach Jerusalem, Samaria, a place where you as a a Jewish person isn't welcome and you don't welcome, and the ends of the earth. And uh, I'll be back for you. And then poof, he ascends into heaven. Like, how do you respond to that? (laughs) Now, you know that Jesus is is all-powerful because you just saw this man defeat death. You you saw him crucified. And so part of you is like, man, if he says we can do it, we can do it. (laughs) I mean, he just hit the game winner, right? He He just took us there, right? And how do they respond? Acts chapter 1, verse 12, this is what it says. It says that they responded by praying. They all... We were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They said, Lord, we are overwhelmed with this mission that you've given us. And because we're overwhelmed and because we're desperate, the only thing that we know to do is to pray. And they pray for 10 days. And that's when the Holy Spirit came. They pray. Acts chapter 4, the church starts to receive its first bit of persecution. And the Bible says this, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They weren't shaken. They weren't in convulsions. They weren't barking like dogs. They weren't running around the church. No, the place was shaken. God had shown up. The ground that they were standing on was holy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word boldly. I know I'm coming on strong tonight. Put your seatbelt on, because we're going we're to keep going. Francis Chan, in his book, Letters to the Church, writes this. Years ago, my friend from India drove me to a speaking engagement to Dallas. When he heard the music and saw the lights, he said, you Americans are funny. You won't show up unless there's a good speaker or band. In India, people get excited just to pray, end quote. Francis continues, he proceeded to tell me how believers back home love communion and how they flocked to simple prayer gatherings. I imagine God looking down on the earth and seeing people on one side of the planet gathering expectantly whenever prayer was happening. Meanwhile, on the other side of the planet, people show up only for the most talented people in the atmosphere. It's embarrassing, end quote. Are we devoted? The Bible says that these, the early church, they're living this radical, what should be actually the simple standard of Christian living. They are being disciples and making disciples. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is so thick amongst them that they are seeing all kind of wonders and signs. That they're being performed through the apostles, through the apostles. The Lord is using the apostles to do some miraculous signs. Now, God still does miracles all over the world, but they're not the same as they were when the church was first birth, because for a specific Point in time in history, God allowed some specific men to be able to do almost healings on demand in order to validate this radical message that they were preaching and to get the attention of of a city. As we see the book of Acts go on, we see miracles, but we see them lessening and lessening as as the word of God is is being spoken and shaped more and more as the epistles are being written. There's less of an emphasis on on these kind of miraculous healings and more of an emphasis on on regeneration or people coming to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God can work. God does work. I mean, just a couple Sundays ago, we, we experienced miracles here right on this stage where multiple people gave testimonies about how they were lost and now they were found, how they were blind and, and now they see, and they were baptized into the body of Christ. That's a miracle. Was it last week, a week and a half ago nationally, this nation saw a miracle as a brave, young black boy embraced his Brother's murderer on national TV and, and forgave her for killing his brother. That's a miracle that God can soften someone's heart and, and call them to respond in such a way. Miracles happen every time we gather together for community group and we are unified in spite of our differences. Miracles happen every time we, we step out on faith and, and share the gospel in a situation where we are uncomfortable. What's interesting about this text is the way that that Luke writes it. Luke writes it in a chiastic form. And what that means is he's using a rhythm in order stylistically to make a point. And a chiasm is a a literary form that is written in a specific way to give emphasis to something that that, that the author wants us to see in a creative way. And so this is kind of written in an ABA format. And here's what I mean. The A in these verses, verse 42, 43, and verse 46 and 47, all are emphasizing what the church did together as they worshiped Jesus together in the temple and in homes. But the B, the part that Luke wants the reader to see and to understand and the way that he couches his argument is this. It starts In verse 44 and 45, now all the believers were together and had all things in common. Now, remember, these people who were believers were people who were from different ethnic backgrounds and who experienced the Holy Spirit fall on them at Pentecost and who committed to now live together in community. Next verse. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. What Luke wants us to see is that what marked the early church was sacrificial living. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, he's going to do the same thing. In verse 32, he says, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they had everything in common with great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and and great grace was on them for there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the proceeds of what was sold. The Holy Spirit had moved in such a way that people said, you know what? My life is not determined by my possessions. I want to give my possessions away. I'm going to live in such a way, not to grab, but to give. And this is what happens when the power of the gospel takes hold and root of our life. We no longer live to grab. We live to go and to give. Why? Because Jesus is our ultimate example. Philippians 2, where we looked at. Jesus is the one who came as our example of a servant, and he did not grasp equality with God, but he gave, and he lived on mission. How do you know? How, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is at work in a community? It's because that community becomes less and less focused on themselves, on their image on their gain and more and more concerned and focused on reaching their city with the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving each other sacrificially bearing one another's burdens looking to see where they can step into need appropriately and wisely through prayer Now, in the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, we don't see a lot more examples of this extreme way of living, which I think points to the fact that Luke is showing us that this early church was just captivated and captured. We do see sacrificial living, but this was just, this is the model. And this is, this is where we as a church want to work to, to cherish the gospel in such a way where more and more we are working towards this end of selfless living. Our culture is a culture, especially in America, I read uh, this quote from a, a sermon that I read this week that says that the average American spends $1.26 uh, do, uh, for every dollar earned and that the average American, uh, that 71% of all credit card balances in the U.S. Um, are only paid on minimally monthly. And what the, uh, the author was, was stressing was that uh, Americans, we live above our means, even though we are, as a whole, uh, the average American is more wealthier. And this is lower middle class, middle, uh, lower class people are more wealthier than 95% of the world. And this mindset has steeped into the church. Our love for God is very dull. Our heart for his mission is is very dry. And it's because we have become we have become consumers like our culture. Our values match the values of this world way too often. And so this sermon series and this vision is a solemn call for us together to seek the face of Jesus desperately. To ask Jesus from the pulpit to the to the pew (laughs) to give us a heart that is soft and susceptible to his word and that believes that joy and sincerity is found in Christ and Christ alone. That happiness and peace is not found in the abundance of possession or the keeping of an image or keeping up with the Kardashians or Joneses. That joy is found when we see that in Christ we have enough, that in Him we are validated, in Him we are accepted. In him, we don't have to prove ourselves. In him, we are loved. In him, we are sung over. In him, we are cherished. In him, we have abundant life. We have what the world is looking for. And so what's the application? The application is twofold. One, God is calling us as a church, if we are going to be gritty disciple makers who fill up our city, God is calling us to be devoted to the church gathered. Here's what I mean. In this text, we see this emphasis on the church coming together as the people of God daily, large group and small group. That means that when we come together, we need to take our time together seriously. That we should come expectantly, that we should come longing for God to fill us up with His Spirit, for God to shake the place where we gather. For God to unify our hearts in a a powerful way. For God to meet us through song and through preaching. And not expecting that to happen every single time, but knowing that it can happen and it may happen. And today may be the day. And even if it doesn't happen, what a privilege it is to to sing songs of praise, to to hear the preached word, to, to see other people who are living faithfully in our city in the midst of Rome to have a home. Oh, so we are sojourners and exiles. And I'm about to dig a, a, little, a little deeper today. And today's sermon is going to be a little longer. So I understand if you have to, have to leave. But I, I, really, I, I really got something, to, something on my heart that I, I want to say to you, okay? Hear me. It, the privilege that we have as Christians to gather together every week should not be taken lightly. There are literally brothers and sisters of ours across the ocean who, if they are found singing together, reading the word together, praying and taking communion, they will be slaughtered. They will be put in consec- consecration camps. But not only that, this is what God has called us to do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 tells us not to neglect the gathering together of believers. Now, here's an observation that I've, I've made the last couple of weeks. I've sat in the balcony for multiple services doing our worship services. And uh, last Sunday, I was actually almost brought uh, to tears. And the reason I was brought to tears was because the Lord had shown me in doing this for a couple of weeks and a couple of services, um, how we are not approaching our time together with reverence and awe. Acts chapter 2, there is a reverence and an awe when the people of God gather. And so I sat on the balcony. I watched for two of our services, two Sundays in a row, people come in. And what I noticed was about 45% of our congregation showed up late at about the third song of our worship service. 45% of our congregation casually walked in, missed the call of worship, missed the first song. Missed the second song, and I just observed. And for one of the services, I went down, I walked down, and I was kind of freaking out. I'm like, is a scandal happening in our church? Did something happen? Is something going on outside? Can people not get in? And I walked, and I looked in the vest and people were just talking and hanging out. There was no expectation. There was no hurry. There was no, there was little zeal. There was there was little, there was little, Excite, little reverence that we are about to experience Christ together. When the people of God come together, God is in the midst of them. God is pleased. And I took responsibility for that as a pastor. As as possibly not modeling that or putting that before us, that when we gather together, it is a time of intentionality. Our worship service is modeled when we gather together after the rhythm of the gospel. We have a team of non-staff people as well as staff people that meticulously put the worship service together, that think through every word that's going to come from stage. And many of us, we, we don't come and we don't come into the house of God early enough or with enough expectance to even to hear what we first call, the first movement, our call to worship which is a a time where we reorient ourselves as, as, as our world has disoriented us all week to remind ourselves that we are worshiping together now in the presence of God. And after that, it flows into a time of confession. Every service is the same. where we confess in the presence of God together that we have fallen short? And after that, we receive a, a movement of the service where we receive assurance. Today it was from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where we receive this assurance that even though we fall short, we have been justified by Christ. We belong to him and God is not angry with us. God, his wrath is not on us. Jesus paid that penalty. And we respond then by giving and by listening to his word and by going. And so I want to encourage you, sojourn, to take serious Sunday morning gatherings. And listen, Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. I've got five kids getting out the house in the morning, on a Sunday morning, getting up (laughs) is hard. And there's times where I'm not preaching. I come in here late and you're going to see me come in late. Don't shame me. It happens. And if you come in late, you shouldn't be ashamed. It happens. But what I'm saying is that should not be our norm. And the way to make that not our norm is by being more intentional. Maybe it's laying out our clothes on Saturday night and ironing. Maybe it's instead of watching that extra Netflix movie, cutting it off at a certain time, and spending some time in prayer asking God to prepare our hearts. Maybe it's saying instead of going out every Saturday night to hang out with friends, I'm only going to do it once a month, and I'm going to try to move that to Friday night so that I, when I'm listening to a Sunday sermon, I'm not falling asleep or looking at my clock every five minutes saying, man, when is Pastor Jamal going to be done? I know it's tight, but I think it's right. Second is by valuing the church scattered. What I mean here is that our primary way of of doing life together, and one of the most important ministry in my estimation for us gathering during a week is community groups. It is no better opportunity for us to live out Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, than through through our small groups and times where we get to do life together. And community groups helps us to do that. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not a part of a community group, to get in one. Now, there come seasons in all of our lives where it may just simply be impossible. But the question that I want you to ask yourself is this. Is this just an impossible season? Which is, if it is, that's fine. Or is this just me not prioritizing this biblical picture of Christian devotion? Another question I want to ask yourself, if Jesus Christ had not come as the Messiah 2,000 years ago and came in, in 2019 and looked at you and said, follow me, would you be willing to reorient your life around him and life with his disciples? Or would you have to say, you know what, I would, but little Johnny plays four sports, and he's starting to get into ballet. And uh, we got to make more time for little Johnny because one of these is going to be his things. Or I, I, I would, but I really like this television show. I would, but I, I really don't like to drive cross town. I would, but will we make excuses or will we say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you and put your kingdom first? Now, this may be a season for you. This may be a time where it's just impossible and it's not wise. That's between you and the Lord and, and, and other Christians who you have invited into your life to help you to think critically about how you live. But maybe it's not a season. Second, I want to invite Pastor Luca up to talk about a really important ministry um, that we are uh, a pathway that is going to help supplement and, uh, and flow out of our community groups called discipleship groups. And this is uh, a new pathway that we are investing uh, time and, and a lot of energy in to help disciple uh, each of our members, and not just to disciple them so that they can be disciples, but so that they can learn how to make disciples with confidence. And so, Pastor Luke, tell us a little bit about uh, discipleship groups, uh, what you're excited about and uh, how they work with community groups.
0: Yeah, thanks, Pastor Jamal. Well, um, I want to give you a little backstory about our discipleship groups. Uh, one is how they started. And uh, a few years ago, probably about two years ago, uh, as elders, we began to see the, the need uh, for clarifying discipleship and, and a desire as well. As we look down to the church, we begin to think about, are there places where if someone becomes a Christian, where they can learn how to read the Bible, how to share their faith, how to uh, grow in the basics of the faith. And uh, we wanted to be more intentional about that. And so we began journeying together as pastors, Pastor Cliff and Pastor Robert and Pastor Jared and I met together for around nine months. We began to look at other churches to see what they were doing, and we ended up, uh, after praying through a lot of different things, coming up with this model—not coming up, uh, uh, adopting this model called D-groups. And so, D-groups merely are uh, groups of three to five people. Uh, they're the same-sex men with men, men with men, women with women, uh, who meet together regularly for 18 months for growth, accountability, mission, and multiplication. And so, uh, we are excited that that God has led us in this direction. This fall, 24 D-groups have started. Uh, This fall, our church, and we hope to see more in the future. And we hope uh, most of all that it will lead to true transformation, uh, that as a result, our people, our sojourners would love God more, learn to love God's word, and learn to apply it to their everyday lives. So that's a little bit of the story.
1: That's great. What have you seen so far uh, with community, uh, with D Groups?
0: Yeah. um, So far, I think. The things that have really stood out to me is just when you're together in a smaller group, three to five people, um, you kind of get down to, to, to real things a little bit faster. Um, and so it's been cool seeing some of those groups gel and, and share in a more honest way. Um, and then too, it's been really cool to see people engage the Word. Um, many of us know about reading the Bible. Many of us may have been taught how to read the Bible, but studies show that uh, around 40, 48% of those who call themselves Christians aren't engaging the Bible in a meaningful and regular way. And so uh, as D groups are getting and doing that together and encouraging one another to do that, uh, it's been really cool to people, see people get excited about knowing God and, and studying the Bible. That's
1: good. And our D groups are in the beta stage. We're just trying it out, working out uh, kinks, learning, and we're going to make that public to our church. Uh, our goal is to see every member who can be, who uh, are, are serious about Jesus and who have confessed Him as Lord, to see them a part of a community group. Our goal is also, these community groups are like boot camps, right? They last for 18 months. Um, they're for a specific time. Uh, ideally, they would flow out of our community groups and, and work uh, alongside with them. But our, our goal is within the next five years to see the majority of our members go through a community group and out, uh, through a D group and out of those D groups to see, see other people start other D groups. And so we are, are committing ourselves to this. We'll have an FAQ uh, coming out soon that answer questions that give you timelines that, that talk more about this pathway. But we wanted to, to put this before you as, a, um, uh, as a, 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 a strategy that says, this is how we're going to fulfill our vision. We're going to fulfill our vision by having Sunday gathered. In a meaningful way. We're going to fulfill our vision when we scatter by doing life together. We're going to fulfill our vision by making sure that we're being discipled and that we are equipped to disciple others. Thank you. you. As a church, I hope that you guys sense the. the, the weight of what we're calling you to. And uh, I know that that can be overwhelming. But I also know, just like the early church, that the way to respond to a big vision is not self-loathing or self-pity, but is going to Jesus Christ in prayer, asking him to give us a soft heart and to fill us with his spirit and to give us the desire to see his kingdom come. Through us. And that's what I'm asking you to do to respond to our vision series. And every Sunday we gather together and we take communion. This meal that reminds us of of Jesus's faithfulness and his love to us. We break bread. We drink wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we do this week in to week out to rehearse the gospel together and to reorient our lives on what matters. We take it, we dip it in, in wine or, or juice, uh, whatever your conscience permits. Those who are in the front, you can come to the front. Those in the back can go to the back. Gluten free communion and alcohol free communion is to my left. Perhaps God is inviting you before you take communion to get today to just sit still and to actually ask Him to empower you to begin to apply this message to be not simply a hearer of the word, but a doer. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit Sojourn Church dot com slash midtown.